That helps, I bet. Yeah. I know. My wife would say, use your big boy voice. You know. <laughs> uh, it is such an honor to be here and not for so many different reasons, for what God is doing in us, with us, through us, for us at Grace Community Church, Grace Church as a bride of Christ. And what we see in growing and going here is incredible. It's an honor to serve with people like Mike and the other elders. These are faithful men of prayer who, who prayerfully lead and guide our church, and it's incredible. And similarly for Jesse, it is wonderful with Jesse. Jesse, by the way, is out running for water, as you, as you know, doing the half marathon. So many folks are. It wasn't, if your friends are here, it wasn't the rapture. I'm just letting you know. They're probably running. And in fact, if we had technology that was working for us here, this is kind of the way that you'd actually have this sermon with Jesse. It'd be like this. Okay, I'm on about mile four and a half, and I just want to let you know, go ahead and open your scripture to Luke 14. I'm just kidding. Jesse, what an incredible gift he is to our church for such a time as this. This is a man who brings scripture every week, every week, standing on God's word, serving our church here, reaching the lost, and, and recognizing that it's bigger than just our church. And again, if you remember during the World Cup, 480,000 people come to Christ because of this man's story and his passion that he has. We are so incredibly blessed to have Jesse. By the way, continue to pray for him. I don't know where he is on the run right now, but if you remember, he had the torn Achilles, ruptured Achilles. Okay, and so last, when I talked with him earlier, he said, the longest I've run is about three and a half miles. And this one goes 13 and a half. So continue to keep him up in your prayer as you go. Hey, I am honored and thrilled to be able to be here with you because we're going to talk a little bit about God's love story to us. Throughout scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, God writes his love story to us. He's telling us how much he loves us. He's telling us how to live a better life, discipling us. He's telling us about events to come and the prophecy in the future so that we won't be surprised. How incredible is that that we have a God that loves us so much? We're gonna be jumping into Luke chapter 14 in the parable of the great banquet. But let me give you, one of the things that I found, Patty and I were blessed. We were absolutely blessed. We have been to Israel a couple of times and the tours there are incredible. Uh, I mean, and, and I'm just telling you this from the standpoint of taking scripture and allowing it to come to life, to see the physical locations to be able to hear the backstories, to be able to understand the context, to understand the Jewish traditions and the elements that came this together. All of a sudden you see scripture in this whole new way. Yeah. We're gonna unpack just a little bit of that as we go. Uh, we, by the way, one of the things when we went, we were blessed, our tour guide was a Messianic Jew. And so what that means is this is someone who understands all the Jewish traditions, the Talmud, the Torah, etc., and all those traditions, and recognizes that Jesus is Messiah, and recognizes the Christianity, and has, actually has a heart for reaching the Jews that don't recognize Jesus as Messiah. So this was a person that was able to bring these stories together to us and unpack them in incredible ways. Context is important. And so before we go into the great banquet, we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the context and what was leading up to that. So join me, if you will, as we, as we think about God's love letter, this great banquet. We're going to go into Luke chapter 14, verse 1 is where we start. 
And in verse one, it says, on the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, okay, again, just recognize, this is on the Sabbath, and he is going into a house of one of the Pharisees. These are the leaders. These are the teachers of the law. He was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. I didn't know what dropsy was. Maybe you guys do. I had no idea. It's this swelling of the body. Okay, so um, when your body is uh, raging on the inside from infection and your lymph nodes and everything is going ballistic and trying to heal yourself, your body tends to swell. Think of if you've had friends that have been through cancer and they've gone through chemotherapy, you can think of those times when their body swells. That's what this man was going through and he's, he's got dropsy, okay? So Jesus asks the Pharisees, he asks the Pharisees, these experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Probably a wise thing for the Pharisees at this point. And I'll just tell you. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Now again, if you're healing from this dropsy, from this swelling, if he's healed, can I just say that you would see his body back in a normal state, right? There's no question this was a healing. This is not somebody that, that uh, you know, he's done other healings as he's, as he's done with broken legs and blind, etc. But this one, they would see this dramatically in front of him. And then Jesus asks, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. These guys stay silent. Jesus is asking them questions and they're staying silent. Why is that happening? Well, there's this little thing called the Sabbath and the law that they have and, and doing work. And they couldn't do work on the Sabbath, right? And you think, well, what is that? What, what does that work look like, right? There were 39 different categories, categories of work. 39 categories of work. You could carry, you couldn't carry stuff. You couldn't burn stuff. You couldn't, you couldn't, on down through the list, combing, tanning, sunning, money exchange, marketing, 39 different categories. And by the way, within each category, there's sub-elements, just so that you know. And, and as an example, this is like multiple pages here of the sub-elements. And so within a house, a couple of things here. If you're inside your house, you can carry stuff. But you cannot carry stuff if you're outside the house. You can only carry what you're wearing on your, your cloak and your jacket, right? So if you're actually carrying stuff and then you happen to go outside, by the way, I, I'm sure that this is the origin of carrying things just a little too far is what I think. But anyway, that's just a, a side note. That's my own personal opinion as you go. But even within the house, there was things that you could carry and things that you couldn't carry, right? So you couldn't carry things that were unimportant. You couldn't carry things like pebbles or stones or pencils or candles or money. You couldn't even carry those in the home. So there's all these rules because otherwise you would be creating work. Now, it's interesting when we went to Israel, you know, these are again from the times of, of Moses. When we were in Israel, uh, we had the opportunity that we were actually there with the Sabbath and Shabbat. And there is a Shabbat elevator. And you're like, well, what's a Shabbat elevator? I suffered the same fate. I had no idea what a Shabbat elevator was. What the Shabbat elevator does is it goes from floor to floor to floor and slowly the doors open and close. And the reason is if you happen to hit the button and say, I'm going to floor five, 
that electrical connectivity is creating work. And you can't do that because you'd be breaking the Sabbath. So it's okay if I just, the doors open up and I step on and I get to my floor and I step off. That's not creating work. But if I push the button, I'm creating work. So you gotta use the Shabbat elevator. Let me tell you, if that's not your thing, when you step on, don't take the Shabbat elevator. It takes forever to get to your floor. I'm just telling you. But, but that's, those traditions and things are there today. That's, that's the very context on what we're dealing with. Now, um, Jesus, though, tells us on Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Amen? And God, uh, Jesus himself in Matthew 12.8 says, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, absolutely rest, because I don't want you to work your fingers to the bone, but you're not supposed to un- undergo all these back-breaking rules. That's not what it's about. It's about honoring God. It's about loving who God is. It's about carrying him and recognizing how great thou art. Well, Jesus put him on edge with these healings and the questions. But then he asks a little bit more on the questions. And as you go into verse five, uh, six, six, they had nothing to say. And you see here in verse seven, he says, and he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table. So he tells them this parable. Now, as I get into the parable, I just want you to understand, Jesus in his masterful storytelling and his telling of these parables, he's speaking both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. There's a message for the Jews there's a message for the Gentiles and the way that he weaves this together. And I'm going to unpack that just a little bit as we go. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If the host who invited both of you would come and say, oh, give this man your seat, then humiliated, you will have to go and take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place So that when the host comes and he tells you, friend, please, I want to move you up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now again, catch the context of this. You've got a Pharisees who it's all about me. I've got, I'm the teachers of the law. I'm I'm all that, I'm taking the prime seats right? I'm, that's where I'm headed. So Jesus just walks through and says, no, 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 no. It's about humility. It's about being humble. Then Jesus says to the host, I thought that was really interesting. Again, this is the home of one of the, one of the Pharisees. So to the host, he says, hey, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they might, you, they might invite you back so that you would be repaid. Okay, so what he's, what he's saying here is don't do the tit for tat thing. Don't, hey, Stephen, I'm inviting you over for dinner. And by the way, I'm expecting the invitation and it better be a good meal when we, when we come back over to your house because you owe me on this one. That's not what it's about. And that Jesus is very clear on that, but that's what they were doing. It was this little holy huddle. It was this coffee clutch. It was this group of people that just stayed close together, right? They weren't carrying out the message and really helping the people. They were establishing all these laws on them. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be less blessed. 
although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, what you've got here is Pharisees who are saying, I'm proud, I'm entitled, I'm self-focused, I'm the best, I love me, I love myself, I've got my picture on my shelf, you know, those kind of folks as you go. You know, folks that whenever you start to engage them in a story and they say, how are you doing? And you say, well, here's what's going on. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden the story is turned and it's all about them, right? I, I, I know that never happens to you, but you know, it can. And, and the, the opportunity here is recognizing that these guys are very self-focused. Jesus is mission-focused. The Pharisees are self-focused. And what Jesus is telling them is, don't come in expecting to be honored. Come in to serve. Come in to be humble, right? And, and that's very directly applicable for us today. Now, you'll also notice that he was talking about a wedding feast, a wedding feast. And so the challenge in, from my mind is I've got this perspective. At, well, actually, if you think about it, how often was Jesus at a wedding, talking about a wedding, attending a wedding and a wedding feast? Okay, where was his first miracle? Cana, what did he do? Water to wine. Where was it? A wedding, amen, right. How about the parable of the 10 virgins? A wedding. The church is being described as the bride of Christ, a wedding, right? And so there's all these contexts and all these stories about being a wedding, a wedding story. Now, I, in my mind, I've got this wrapped around of the classic Western-style wedding, right? So the Western-style wedding, you know, as you, as you think about it, there's a prayer at the beginning. There's the groom's folks on one side, the bride's on the other, right? The bride comes down. There's, there's the prayer, there's the exchanging of vows, there's the exchanging of gifts, there's a proclamation that you're married. You know, this is the context that I'm thinking of, you know, as you go. By the way, fastest wedding ever, I've done a handful of weddings, I haven't done this one. Fastest wedding ever happened to be in the old West days, the cowboy days. This is the whole service. I'll do the whole service for you right here. Have her, have him, done. That's it. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of prep and set up there, but there's not a lot of romance and things either as you go. So, um, and what I found as I dug in a little bit more and wanted to learn, what I found, the Galilean wedding was uniquely different, significantly different than what we think about in the West. And it was unique in Israel. This wasn't a wedding that was done across Israel. This was in the Galilean region. Who were Jesus' disciples? They were all Galileans. So when he talked about a wedding, he was able to relate to them in ways that they completely understood. That sounds good. And I said, well, okay, talk to me a little bit more. What's the Galilean wedding look like? It's quite different. What is it? Well, it's actually a story, and you'll see a little bit of it in here about prophecy. It starts with the betrothing, the betrothal. And I would just tell you that a wedding in Galilee, and for any place in the, is, it is the most significant event anywhere, anytime for any of these people. And so when a wedding came up, it was like, y'all come, we got a wedding, we're excited, let's go. So at the betrothal, they would come up and say, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna be betrothed, so let's go. Come on, everybody, come on, come on. Where are we going? City gates. Why are we going to the city gates? City gates is where the elders sit, that's where the contracts are, that's where the people would come and everybody would come in to witness this commitment of a wedding. Cool. So what did the process look like? Well, the prospective bride and groom and the groom's father 
read a marriage covenant. So it'll be something like you see here. Again, the father is reading through the covenant. And this is the covenant of bringing two families together. The father himself is actually reading this and saying, here's the commitments, here's the things that we will do, here's how these families come together. And it's a legal agreement. Then gifts are exchanged. The most extravagant gift was given to the bride. And part of that was recognizing that it's a hard life. The husband could die in that case, but they give an extravagant gift to take care of this prospective bride beforehand. And then comes the point where there's this hush over the crowd. It's called the cup of joy. So there's a cup and the groom, they pour wine into it and they offer it to the bride, okay? So it comes like this. And what this is, is this is, this, this is the moment where the bride can either accept or reject the wedding proposal. If she takes and drinks of the cup, She's accepting the wedding proposal. If she says, no, I don't want to drink of it, I'm, I'm done. That's her point where she can say no or yes. So everybody's kind of got this hush over the crowd. Is she going to do it? Is she, going to, is she saying yes? What did she say? That's where we're at. The next thing, though, is the groom then drinks of the cup. And this is what started to really open my eyes. He then says, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses, and I will not drink from this cup again until I do it in my father's house. Okay, wait a minute. This kind of sounds familiar. I, I, I recognize this. Do you guys, you guys hear in that? Let me jump to Matthew 26, 26, 27 through 29 over here. Then he took the cup, of, this is the last supper. Then he took the cup of wine. He gave thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood, which is a covenant, which is poured out for the many of you for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it with you in my father's house. You guys catching the similarity? I mean, it just blew me away as I read this. Okay, wait a minute. This is, this is just like what the wedding would have been. Now that you've got the commitment and they've, they've been betrothed. By the way, this is Mary and Joseph when they say they were betrothed. This is the point, Right? They got to this point, they're committed, she's, she's accepted, and now what happens is the groom goes away and prepares the home. And what he's doing is he's preparing the home that's actually at the father's house. And you can see this now, as you go throughout the Galilean region, there are houses, and typically it's built up a level, so you see the house and there's construction going on and it's building up to the next floor, because there's multi-generational families living together. And so... They would build up, and the groom has a lot of work to do. By the way, from the point of the betrothal to the wedding is a year. It's a year. And that's where he's doing all the preparation. That's where he's, he's building the home. He's buying the furniture. He's doing the plates. He's getting the home ready. He's purchasing the food for the wedding banquet. By the way, the wedding banquet is going to be a week-long deal with all your friends and then some. So there's a lot of food to prepare and get. So this guy, this is what this guy is doing. He's going and preparing the place for his bride. His bride, by the way, is preparing her wedding dress. She's remaining vigilant and pure until the groom returns. Well, if you think about John 14, one through three, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, you also believe in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, 
I would have told you. I'm going there to what? Prepare a place for you. Fascinating. How awesome. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and you will be with me that you may be where I am. The bridegroom goes to prepare a place. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Oh man, is that exciting or what? I mean, it's just, ah. Now here's the kicker though. I, I kind of, you know, as I'm unpacking this, my mind's just kind of going, well, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I'm getting some of this. This is, this is really pretty interesting. Here's the kicker for me. The bride and the groom have no idea when the wedding date is. They have no idea when their wedding is. There's one person that declares when the wedding is. It's the father. It's the father. Holy smokes. So as you're reading this, you're thinking about this and you're going, well, when does this happen? How does this happen? How do they know? How are they ready? What's the deal? The groomsman, in addition to doing his work, he's got his wedding party and they're all in their wedding clothes because you know what? The announcement's gonna come at night. It doesn't come in the middle of the day. It comes at night. They're all sleeping together in their groom's clothes. And over here at the bride's house, you've got the bride and all of her bridesmaids and they're all in their wedding dresses in preparation. They're all ready to go. But it's the father's decision and they don't know when the time is it's the father's decision when he looks and he says, you finally got the house together. You've got all these elements. Go get your bride. Go get your bride. Matthew 24, 36, as you go, says, so about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. The Galilean wedding is so similar. It just blows me away that you think about that. It's just the father that knows. And so when he says, go get your bride, can I just tell you, there's some excitement. You've got the groom that wakes up and is like, yes, this is the day. I get to go get my bride. I've waited a year. Let's go, guys. Come on. And they blow the shofar horn. You know, they let everybody know. And now they're waking up the entire town. It's the wedding feast. Let's go. Come on, everybody. Let's go. And away they go. For the wedding feast, they're collecting folks as they go. Now, the bride, by the way, is, is asleep and she's in her wedding dress with her wedding party. She's got to quickly get up, get the lamp ready because it's at night. You remember this with the light? You know, you've got to have your oil ready and the lamp because it's dark. I'm sorry, it's a night picture, all right? They didn't have good cameras back then. But, <laughs> but they're coming with torches. They're coming with the shofar horn. They're going to get the bride. How exciting is that? But then it gets a little bit even more interesting. When it comes time to get the bride, the bride did not walk back to the father's house. She was carried. She was carried. They had a thing that was kind of called, it was, it was like a litter. It was like, if you think of a, a stretcher, but instead it was a chair in there that they would come in and they would lower down. She would climb in. They would lift her up and they literally called it flying the bride to the father's house. This is the rapture. You've just heard the betrothal and the covenant of God. You've heard, you, you've heard that. You've heard about going to prepare a place for you. You've seen the gifts prepared. And now all of a sudden, here comes the rapture and the bride is swept up to go meet her groom. How exciting. I mean, this just blew me away. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, as you're coming through here, this talks about specifically, as you see right about in the middle, there is a trumpet call that starts this whole thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 6 says, he comes like a thief in the night. Okay, so if you're ready, it's not like a thief in the night. If you're ready, you go like, hey, party's on, feast is on. I got, I've got my appetite, let's go, let's go to the party. This is exciting. If you're asleep and you're not prepared, you're like, oh, well, what, what is it? What's gonna, what's, uh, can I get there in time? Here's what happens. The bridal party comes in, the guest comes in and the door shuts. And the door is closed for seven days. For seven days, no one goes in and out and that's where the feast occurs. Those that were ready get to attend the wedding feast. Those that were not ready are locked out. Are you hearing? Are you hearing the word here? I mean, this was stunning for me as I heard this. You get this person, you, you have this whole new perspective of scripture and the context of the wedding it, and the comparisons to prophecy is just phenomenal. So that's your backstory. This is what the wedding kind of looks like, feels like, etc. Okay, so Jesus has just told him again, remember context, I did a healing, you guys were quiet. I went ahead and I did, um, uh, I asked you about uh, the healing the, or helping the ox out of the well. You guys were silent. I'm telling you, you don't take the best places at the meal. You guys aren't talking. I, I talk about not doing tit for tat. And then I just give you this parable about this dinner and inviting those folks. And here's where somebody speaks up. And he says, when one of those at the table heard him say this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Again, you gotta read that with as much entitlement and drip as you possibly can, because this is a Pharisee. This is a guy that's saying, we've got our, faith, our place in the kingdom of God. When God calls us home, we've got a seat at the table. And by the way, we got one of the best seats at the table, because we're the dudes, we're the Pharisees, right? That's what he's saying. Now, it's at this point, as I read that, what I knew is the women weren't sitting at the same table with them. I can just tell you that. Because in a situation like this, my wife would just reach over and put her hand on my leg. This isn't the time to say something, honey. Just be a little quiet. Put her hand on my hand. You know, you probably just want to be quiet. Just, you know. But the, like I say, this guy jumps in and he says, well, look at how great we are. We're going to get a seat at the table. So Jesus then tells him and tells another parable again with specifics for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. Okay, who's the certain man? It's God, right? If it's preparing the great wedding feast, it's God. A certain man was preparing this banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant out for those that had been invited. Come, for everything is now ready. Okay, so I tell you, there's gonna be a party. We're gonna do it here on this date. You all say, I'm gonna be there. I go and I prepare all the food. I kill the fatted calf. I prepare all the food and everything. And no, there's no refrigeration, right? I prepare the food. It's gonna be eaten or it's gonna be done. Now I say, I send out my servant and I say, come on, it's time to go. And the excuses start. And what you get here is, they all, again, they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, 
well, I bought this field and I really need to go inspect it. Okay, is there anybody here in this room that would buy a field sight unseen and not inspect it beforehand? I mean, seriously, right? You know this guy inspected it. You got the next guy over here that says, well, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to test them out. Please excuse me. Okay, again, context. If you went to an auction back in that day, before you would buy or bid on the oxen, there was a field next to you and you could try out the oxen with the plow. How are these gonna work? Is this plowing a straight line? Is this not gonna work? If you went to somebody's house, if I went to Dave's house and I said, Dave, I'm gonna buy your oxen. Dave would have a field right there that I could try them out. Nobody's gonna buy the oxen without trying them out. And yet this guy says, you know, I gotta test drive my car. I gotta do that, you know, my, I gotta wash my hair. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you're getting here, right? And now he says, the next one, he comes back and he says, hey, I just got married. Again, you would be inviting the family. It would be joining the family. So they've got all these excuses. The servant came back and reported to, this, to the master. Again, all these, this is, those are the Pharisees that says, I'm entitled, but you know what? I'm not really gonna come. You entrusted me to tell the people and to inform them and instruct them, but I'm not gonna get it done. So the servant came back and reported him. The owner became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and towns and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those were all the outcasts. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now let me put that in just one more piece of context. We'll give just a little bit more here as we go. In Exodus 3.8, we're gonna go right back to the old scripture, when they've been... Israelites walking around 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. And God says, go take the land of milk and honey, right? And if you look at it and what it says here, it's down at the bottom, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's the city of Jabus, which later became the city of David, which is in the walls of the city of Jerusalem. God commanded them, go take the city. But what's fascinating is in Joshua 15.63, it said, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. God said, take the land, drive the people out. And they said, yeah, we'll just live with them. We'll just let the sin in our life. It's just okay, I'll just live with it. That's not what God's command was. And so there's this separate situation here where Jabus had not been conquered. Okay, now if you jump forward a little bit into scripture, now King David, and King David and his army is going in, he's coming in to take Jerusalem, and the first city is Jabus. Now Jabus, and we went there, and it was really cool, it's this walled city, and it's up on a hill, so it'd be like, I could look down and see all of your houses down here. By the way, this is also where the Bathsheba incident appeared as well, because you could literally see down on the tops of roofs. It's, it was fascinating to see, but separately, it's this walled city. You couldn't come up and conquer it, because it would just be too easy for them to defend. So it was so easy that what the Jebusites said, and what they did, is they put the blind and the lame on the walls as the watchman. Now, I would tell you in my mind, I gotta figure that the blind people were just the ones that would like yell, hey, they're coming, because he told me, because I can't see them. But, you know, as opposed to, <laughs> but you got the crippled that are there that are watching, but those are the people that are there. And as you recall in the story, David comes up through the waterway, God gave him the story to come up through the waterway, he got inside the city and he conquered it, right? 
So he takes it, he's empowered by God, and all of a sudden then you find his proclamation at the end that says, and it's uh, coming up, where there's quite a chunk in here, but by the way, down near the bottom it says, because the blind and the lame, I'm gonna do it from memory, because the blind and the lame were against me, they will not be allowed into the palace. He cast them out. They were done. They were outcasts. None of the blind and the lame at that point were allowed back into the temple, into the palace, into the city. They were outcasts. We didn't want you anywhere around. You were against David. So they were telling him, go out and get these folks that were the undesirables and invite them in. Doesn't matter who they are. Invite them in. Now, interesting, the response here from the servant is... uh, Sir, said the servant, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Now, here's the interesting thing. What you've ordered has been done. Okay, there's miracles that Jesus did all throughout the land, right? But within the city of Jerusalem, other than when he did a miracle in front of the Sanhedrin and got to the discussion of can we do work, and there were several of those, there were only two miracles he did when and, and that was healing both the blind and the lame. One of them is in the pool of Siloam down on the very south end. There's the blind guy. This is the scoop up the mud. And the guy can see, didn't have eyes, and now he can see. And the other one is way on the far north end, Bethsaida. And where that one is, the, remember the storing of the waters, the guy's crippled, I can't get in the water in time. And so in order to get into the water, the other people are there, and so they're healed. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk, you're healed. So he healed a blind man on the south end. He healed a crippled man on the north end of Jerusalem, restoring them into the kingdom, restoring them into the palace. It has been done. You read that right there, Right? Now you come up just a little further and he says, then go quickly to the streets and the alleys in the town. Then he says, um, then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I will not let one of those who were invited to get a taste of my banquet. Okay, so who are the folks out in the country roads and the far reaches? It's you and I, that's the Gentiles. This is the Gentiles. He's saying, go invite the Gentiles. And he's saying, the Pharisees won't taste of the banquet, but I want to go out to the, to the Gentiles. Now, you notice it doesn't say it's done. Why is it not done? That's our job. We have to continue inviting. We have to go. The, the wedding feast is coming, and we've got to be ready. We've got to be able to invite and, and invite others. In Acts 1.8, you know, it says right here in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Invite him. The wedding feast is coming. So where are we on the timeline? You've had this covenant. Okay, there is a covenant for the Gentiles. If you look to Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, by the way, and this is just one, there's others where it promises. But right down at the bottom, you would see, but now in Christ Jesus, while you were once far away, Through the blood of Christ, you are now brought near. That's a covenant. That's a promise. That's a promise from God. Okay, have you had the cup of joy offered? Did you accept it? 
what we do every time when we go through communion. And I tell you, after reading this, I, I see communion differently. It's, but have you, have you been able to take up the cup? Have you accepted Jesus? Has Jesus paid the price? Has he given us an extravagant gift? Absolutely. Has, give, has Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place? Absolutely. Guys, the next step is flying the bride. Go get your bride flying the bride. And I got to ask myself when I got there, you know, what are the signs of the end times? Well, 2 Timothy 3.1 says they're perilous times. Luke 21.11 says there's earthquakes, plagues, famine. Matthew 24 says wars and rumors of wars. Even from prophecy in Isaiah, it says those that you call evil will be good and those that you call good would be evil. Does that sound like what we're dealing with right now? I mean, the world is turning upside down. Can I just tell you, it feels like, and we don't know what the time is, but it feels like we're, we're right there. Uh, I would share with you, by the way, as an exa- one short example, uh, Senate Bill 5599. This is one, if you're for it, call, call uh, Senator, uh, Governor Inslee and tell him to sign it. If you're against it, call it and tell him not to. This is a bill that allows the state to take your children age 13 and up if they want to have gender affirming surgery and they don't have to tell you where they are and, and they will go and have the surgery done. They will take you from their family. So if, if you believe that's a good thing, call him and tell him to sign it. If you recognize that what God says is families is important and you need that family unity, then I encourage you to call him and tell him do not sign that bill because it won't go into the law if he doesn't sign it. By the way, there's also in Boston, SatanCon is happening this weekend. SatanCon is happening this weekend. It's phenomenal what's going on right now. The challenge for me then, and these are questions that I have for me, am I inviting others to the banquet? And I gotta be honest with you, there are times where I think, you know, I'm a little entitled that I, I, I got my spot, I'm okay. I don't wanna do that awkward thing and invite. Um, I struggle a little with the entitlement. Jesse's got us through with blessed stories to begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, share your story. Great ways to start to begin to go out that. And then recognize that as we invite others to come to Christ, then there's also the role and the responsibility for us to disciple them, to take them from milk to meat, to help them understand so that they can be disciple makers on their own. Like I say, I was just blown away as I looked at the Galilean wedding and the similarities for us, and I know the end times are short. And I pray for us every day that again, God is doing something at grace in us, through us, with us, that we are so honored to be seeing what's going on. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your son, for for being our God. God, we praise you for this church. We praise you for your message. We praise you that you unpack it in ways that we see things in new ways. God, may you be Lord of all. May you be King of Kings. And we look forward to being flown as the bride of Christ to meet you. In Jesus' name.